Good morning, everybody. My name is David, and I'll be unpacking your word today. Just to remind you that, that this will be recorded uh, online. Uh, let's pray as we come to this challenging passage in God's word uh, today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your hands made us and formed us. Give us understanding to learn your word this morning. Give us hearts to be open hearts that are open to respond to your word in jesus name we pray amen well slogans can be really catchy and effective in getting into our psyche and we often have them on the tip of our tongues when liz and i first returned from australia after being away for the, our first three years overseas we we came back with our, our, our then two-year-old son micah and after watching Australian television for the first time, it wasn't long before he was singing all the slogans like the rest of them. One particular one that uh, I recall quite distinctly was the way it went like, down, down. And what's the rest of it? Prices are down, 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 prices are down. And certainly with no crowds at the Olympics uh, this time round, we haven't heard the much loved and as well as much hated Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi, oi, oi. That's right. If I were live, well, I'd hear you echoing it back to me uh, in the hall. Uh, but we haven't heard that echoing around our lounge rooms uh, this Olympic Games. But we have slogans about life as well. Uh, follow your heart. Live your dreams. And the most famous of all, just do it. Just do it. Now, the problem with slogans is that it doesn't capture the complexity of the issue. Sure, winning may be everything, but only when you win. But when you don't win, we say, oh, well, winning isn't everything. Or don't we say, win at all costs? Then in the same breath, we say, oh, well, it's not really whether you win or lose, but how you play the game. So. Slogans don't really capture the complexity of it all. And the Corinthians had their share of slogans as well. Everything is permissible for me, they would say. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food. But they were slogans they used to justify their behavior that was contradictory to who they claimed to be. And in particular, behavior that related to their sexual practices. And over the next three weeks, at this passage and all of chapter seven, we'll be exploring the topic of sexuality. What does the topic, what does the Bible say about the topic of sex? What are our bodies designed for? What are our bodies not designed for? It's a sensitive issue. It uh, makes people feel a bit squeamish and all that kind of thing. But it's the, it's, the passage uh, speaks of it very strongly today and over the next few weeks. And so we're not going to avoid it and we're going to unpack it together. Now, often, as is the case uh, in this letter, Paul picks up on a behavioural issue and uh, within the church and, and looks at what is driving that issue. And in this case, what is driving their behaviour are, are distorted principles that the Corinthians had adopted and misguided mission statements, if you like. And then Paul takes these unsound, misleading principles and, and questions their legitimacy. He, can, he questions them by contrasting them to, to what we know about God's design for the body and then what God has done uh, for us. And then the resulting conclusion is intended to shape their behaviour regarding the original issue. So 
Um, so that's where we'll be going uh, today, looking at the behavioural issue, what was driving the behavioural issue, and then some of the principles that Paul um, raises in response uh, to the issues. And then he gives some conclusions. Now, what is the issue that the Corinthians are facing and that Paul's addressing in this particular passage today? Uh, now, you might have noticed that there are three do you not know, do you not, do you not know questions in the text. The first two seem to be highlighting the behavioural issue uh, for them. Look at verse 15 and 16 there. It says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For he said the two will become one flesh. The original behavioural issue that had to do with the believers asserting their freedom, the Corinthians asserting their freedom to, to sleep with prostitutes, the Corinthian believers. Now, what was driving this behaviour? There are a number of cultural factors that come into play. And firstly, there's this common view in, in pagan moral philosophy that each person has the right to assert their supreme independence. It's not unlike our very individualistic society today. It's my body. I can do anything I want with it, we hear. It's my body, my choice. Adding to this was the typical Greek dualistic thought that God is concerned only with those aspects of a person that survived death. That is, in their mind, somebody's soul or spirit, not their body. And therefore, they had a low opinion of the body. What, what you did with the body didn't matter. What was more important was the soul or the spirit of a man. So the common attitude was that your body was your own and you could do what you wanted with it. It was the spirit of a soul or the soul that mattered. Now, the outcome of that was that the, the city of Corinth, of course, was a city rife with loose standards of sexual morality. Not unlike our own city of Sydney, where the immorality of our age is championed across our TV screens every day. Just like Paris in, in France has a reputation for romance, and we associate notions of romantic experience with the word Paris. So too did Corinth have a word association going on with their city but not with the notions of romance. In fact, Corinth had such a reputation that they coined a verb in their language to act like a Corinthian. And so when the, the mere mention of the, this word would conjure up the concept, not of romance, but of sexual immorality, such was their reputation that a word in the language automatically, when you heard it describing the city, was conjuring up an image of sexual immorality. So it's into this mix of culture that Paul brings the gospel message of, of Christian freedom. And the Corinthian believer with their superior wisdom reasoned, if the Christian wasn't uh, put right with God through their obedience to the law, but through faith in Christ, then once they accepted Christ, they were free to do whatever they wanted with their body. Especially a body that was in their culture was theirs to do what they wanted with and had no internal significance anyway. So there's all this confusion going on within their understanding, and hence their pithy slogans justifying their behaviour. 
slogans that probably reshaped some of Jesus' words himself that Paul had taught them in bringing the gospel to them. Sounds like our culture today, doesn't it? Follow your heart. Just do it. Paul certainly wouldn't be out of place as a social commentator in our generation, in our own culture. But he begins to question the legitimacy of their slogans. And each time Paul quotes their slogans, he questions their validity by adding a short catchphrase of his own. Have a look at verse 12 and 13 there. Everything is permissible for me, but, Paul says, uh, not everything is beneficial. Because his response is as short as the slogan itself, the meaning of Paul's assertion isn't actually, it's is more implied rather than explained here. But we know that living in a culture where everyone demands their freedoms, Paul is trying to say is one person's freedom is not always beneficial to another person's freedom. One person's demand, for example, here in our own culture, to go shopping in a pandemic without a mask to wait, takes away my freedom to feel safe to go shopping, even with a mask. It's the great paradox. As everybody demands freedom, no one can be free at all. It's the great paradox of the language of freedom that we use in our culture. Paul adds another correction in verse 12b. Everything is permissible for me, they say. But, Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. Now, there's a bit of a play on words going on here with the, the language permissible and, and mastered in the original language. Now, one translation puts it like this. All things are in my power, but I shall not be overpowered by anything. Now, by insisting on being free to have sex with a prostitute, they are actually putting themselves under the power of the prostitute for that encounter of sexual satisfaction. And Paul's trying to highlight the hypocrisy of, of, of their statement. They are not actually not free at all, but under the power of their sinful, lustful desire. They're not free at all. And then he gets to one about food in verse 13. Food for the stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The appetite for food is being linked to the appetite for sex. So in the Corinthians mind, just as one satisfies a physical appetite when one is, when one is hungry, then one has every right to satisfy a sexual appetite when one feels aroused. So in their enlightened superior wisdom, they were suggesting that whatever the body desires, then let the body be satisfied. Whether it's an appetite for food or appetite for sex, doesn't matter. Just satisfy the appetite. Just do it. Follow your heart's desire. Once again, Paul qualifies their slogan, but this time he goes into a, a bit more detail. And this is what's going to help, will lead into here to unpack, this extra detail will help us unpack the thrust of what Paul is trying to say. And this is the first of eight occasions in verse 9, from, uh, verses nine to, uh, from verses 12 to 20. This is the first of nine occasions that Paul is referring to the body. Uh, eight occasions that Paul is referring to the body in these nine verses. Have a look at the key point he introduces in the verse, uh, first, second half of verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Now, God may have designed the stomach for food and designed food for the stomach, but he didn't design the body for sexual immorality. 
Now, it doesn't say that the body wasn't designed for sex. Sexual pleasure is designed by God. It's his invention. He designed it for our bodies to enjoy. Christians are not anti-sexual pleasure. But although his design for our body included sexual pleasure, his design for our body did not include sexual immorality. And that's a big difference. Sexual immorality, as the Bible defines it, is sexual, any sexual activity outside the, the context of a other person-centered lifelong commitment of a marriage between a man and a woman. Any behavior outside of that means we are engaging in sexual immorality. Have a look again at verse 30. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The body is meant for the Lord in the sense that it should be used in the way the designer intended it to be. And the Lord for the body in the sense that God knows what is best for our bodies. He designed them after all. It seems that in our culture today, people have mixed feelings about their bodies. People either worship their bodies through a pursuit of bodybuilding or fitness regimes or well, they despise their body by being consumed by beauty treatments or, or weight loss programs or, or whatever. That's interesting. What do you look at first in a group photo? When you see a group photo, what do you look at first? When you look at a group photo that you're in, who is the first person you look at? Yourself, of course it is. You start checking, oh, is my hair a bit messy? Oh, I look a little bit overweight at that angle. I don't like the look on my face. The, the culture we live in breeds an insecurity about the, the use of our bodies. It's reflected in messages and we see in our TV screens and devices and it starts to influence our thoughts and actions. But God is offering an alternative. That the value placed on the body doesn't come from the satisfaction of what the body desires rather comes from knowing the one who created our bodies, our maker, our designer, and living in light of the purposes he has for our bodies. So there are three things I want to unpack under God's design for the body. Let's have a look briefly at them as he, Paul begins to engage with them a little bit deeper. First of all, he says that our bodies are designed for a higher purpose than just the satisfactions of all the desires of the flesh. And in verse 14, he says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. And he will raise us also. The death of our body is, is not the end of our body. Chapter 15 of, of 1 Corinthians explores that in a lot more detail. An amazing chapter. And the philosophers of the age said the body was insignificant and transient because it is the spirit that matters. But Paul is reminding them that there is no separation of the body and the spirit. And in verse 19, Paul actually refers to the body and the person interchangeably, highlighting that the body encapsulates the whole per person. The body is the context in which we experience life and, and death and feelings, emotion, sickness, sexuality, everything. The body is an inherent, important, integral part of who we are. 
So knowing that in the future, our eternal destiny includes our body being raised from the dead, gives significance and meaning and responsibility to our bodily existence now in the present. But there's more to God's design for the body. We're also united to Christ. And Paul ties our resurrection to Christ, to Christ's resurrection, by saying that we are members of Christ's body. And he picks that up in verse 15. Do you not know? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? As believers in the Lord Jesus, we are intimately integrated into Christ. Now, we are not members of Christ in the sense of, of being a member like of the RSL club or being a member of a sporting club. We're individual members. But rather here, it's the image of a more living and organic sense, like, like limbs and organs all integrated in together. You can't just sort of pull them apart. And he picks this up when he quotes from Genesis chapter 2 in verse 16b, talking about the marriage relationship. He said the two will become one flesh. And this emphasizes the real and enduring bond that is created in a marriage and the sexual union is a, is a powerful image of that. But Paul goes on to speak of a far more profound relationship than one could ever experience in marriage. He says in verse 17, he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Paul is arguing from the lesser to the greater here. Sure, as intimate a connection there is between a husband and wife uh, in the union of marriage, but the union, um, the union of Christ with a believer is far more meaningful. Well, not in a physical sense, a believer has a harmonious relationship with Christ in our very essence. We are one with him in spirit. Now, weddings have their own slogans, don't they? We all like to go to a wedding. And when I used, I used to work as a wedding photographer many years ago, so I've been to over 100 weddings in a, a number of years. And one thing I kept hearing at the wedding receptions all the time was the, 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 this line would always keep coming up. Oh, they were made for each other. Oh, oh, look at them. Oh, they're just made for each other. Such a nice, warm, fuzzy thing to say. Oh, made for each other. But is that true? Are they really made for each other? This certainly seemingly romantic ideal is a bit of a cliche Hollywood slogan. It has somehow made us think that life has no meaning unless we find the one we were made for. At a wedding, as much as it's nice to say about the couple, oh, they were made for each other. It's not actually true. It's a lie. First and foremost, this passage is reminding us that we were made for God. To be one with God is the most profound and significant relationship one could ever experience. That is what we're made for. God has such a high view of who we are as a person, including our physical body, that he hasn't limited its meaning and purpose to whether or not someone has a marriage partner. Marriage or singleness doesn't define who we are. We belong to the Lord first and foremost. That is 
reinforced by Paul's language of the temple of the Holy Spirit. The, the intimate spiritual relationship is reinforced with what Paul says in verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? Now, this language of temple of the Holy Spirit is not the same as it was in back in chapter three that we looked at together back in April, where Paul said the congregation together corporately was the temple of God. Now, this is different, different angle here. He's saying individually. He's applying the image to us individually. And the fact that the Holy Spirit resides in us reminds us that just like the purposes of the temple, the purpose of our bodies is to bring glory and honour to God. To not dishonour his name with our body. So that all this theology that Paul's trying to be brought out out of these verses can be summed up in verse the end of verse 19 and 20. This is what he says. Powerful words. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. You are not your own. They are no longer their own, the Corinthians. They're no longer enslaved to the passions and desires of their own flesh. That is what they were. That is what some of you were, we were reminded last week in the passage. And so the theme that they are a new people in Christ continues to run through this letter. But to be a new people in Christ came at a price, an incomprehensible price. You were bought at a price, Paul says. You were bought at a price. The imagery used here draws on the language of the slave market and the concept of freedom. As we were reminded in chapter 5, those who believe in Christ know that Jesus shed his blood through his death on the cross as a sacrifice in our place. The, the, the language that we looked at on in about, the, about the Passover, the judgment of God for our sin passes over us. We are redeemed from our empty way of life, rescued from slavery to sin. If we become a new people in Christ, the new people of God united to Christ in our very being. So with their everything is permissible for me and I have the right to do anything attitude. The Corinthians were confused about the true nature of freedom. And they were in danger, they were in danger of being enslaved by their own desires to, to satisfy the cravings of the flesh. However, the point here is not about having unqualified freedom, but rather having a change of ownership. The status and conditions of a slave depended on who you belong to. So as believers in Christ, the Corinthians belong to Christ, who laid down his life to save them from their slavery to sin. It doesn't get any better than belonging to a God like that. As Christians, we live for Jesus. The risen Lord. The Lord that laid down his life. For us, it is because we are united him in our united to him in our very essence, our spirit. We find our purpose and our identity, our every part of our being, in him, and that includes our 
physical body. So as we ask the question, to whom does my body belong? This passage is reminding us that we are not our own. We were bought at a price. We are united to Christ. Our body belongs to him. We look to him for direction in life, for instructions on what our body was designed for. We don't find those answers in the desires of our own hearts. Now, a message like this in today's culture strikes at the very heart of postmodern, the postmodern ideal that we establish our own identities and prize our autonomous freedom. But we know as Christians that true freedom to be the best that we can be can only be found in Christ. So let's come back for a moment to their behaviour that Paul was speaking against going to the prostitutes that he raised in verse 15. He says this, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Paul is appealing to their identity as God's people united to Christ in their very being. And when he says to take the members of Christ, the English translation take doesn't quite capture the weight of it. It's, it's more like seize control of it. It's more like Paul is asking, shall I tear from Christ his limbs and organs and make them limbs and organs of a prostitute? If it's so dishonouring to the marriage relationship if the husband unites with a prostitute or vice versa, how much more serious is it for a believer united to Christ in spirit to be united to a prostitute? Sexual immorality is not an insignificant affair. God has a higher view of the body than to waste it on casual sex that leaves us feeling empty and unsatisfied. Sex is meant to be a lot more satisfying and meaningful than that. And going to prostitutes, the Corinthians not only renounced the lordship of Christ over their bodies, bodies that were bought at a price, they miss out on the freedom that could be theirs to enjoy sex the way that God designed it to be enjoyed. But they also bring incredible shame and dishonour to the name of Christ. Let's draw out a few implications here, a few implications for us. As we ask the question, how do I honour God with my body, with my sexuality? Well, while the next, uh, next week's passage will explore the opportunities to enjoy sexual pleasure, we'll be talking about that in chapter 7. This passage today uh, more sums it up with more the negative about what not to do how not to enjoy it. And he just pretty much sums it up with one word. Flee. As we've already said, flee not from sex. No, he's not saying flee from sex at all. But he's saying flee from sexual immorality. The misuse of sex. The abuse of sex. Sex outside a healthy marriage. 
Now, a Sydney Anglican minister, Marshall Ballantyne Jones, who's recently completed his PhD uh, on the effects of pornography on young people, says that recent studies have shown that about 70% of males and 20% of females regularly view pornography. He goes on to say that data describing Christian populations suggests a similar frequency, including Christian leaders. This is very sobering. Very sobering. So with this in mind, there may be some amongst us who struggle with the addiction of pornography or some other form of sexual temptation outside God's design for marriage. If that is you, you need to heed the strong message from this passage to flee. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord. And the Lord knows what is best for your body. Stop taking second best. Stop being consumed by what is mastering you. You are united to Christ. You have the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. You can break away from whatever is trying to consume you right now. If you want to flee, you need to bring it out into the light. Sin breeds in darkness. Sin flourishes in secrecy. Talk to somebody you trust. If you feel comfortable with me, then write to me an email. Call me. Speak to me. There is a way out, but you can't do it on your own. You need help. For those of you who may feel that you are well advanced in years and the immediacy of this temptation was in years gone by, your body may have waned, but perhaps your mind has not. As Jesus reminds us in Matthew's gospel that even thinking about it is as serious as carrying it out. So no matter how old we are, let us keep guarding our thoughts, our eyes. For those older ones amongst us, let's keep setting an example for us younger men coming through. We need good role models in our lives. Now, whether we are young or old, may all of us be committed to praying for each other that we were, we were bought at a price that we will honour God with our body, that we will flee from sexual immorality. Let's pray that for one another in this sexually charged world in which we live. Pray for our children as they grow up in this, this culture that is so loose with sexuality, that they will make decisions that reflect their union with Christ. And may us who are leading them be examples for them to follow. Let's be intentional about choosing what we read on the internet, what we choose to watch on TV and what movies we watch, what filters we have on our devices, putting our computer screens in public spaces around the home so we are held accountable to what is on our screens. Let's be realistic about this issue. John Piper helpfully suggested using the acronym ANTHEM to flee from sexual immorality. Avoid, say no, 
turn away from temptation, hold, engage in a healthy distraction and meditate on scripture. You can look it up on the internet. It might be helpful for you. Now, if you've been challenged by anything that God has been saying to you through this passage today, then I encourage you to act on it. After we finish the service today, you can contact me straight away by phone or email. We can talk about it. Let's not keep hiding it away. But there may be some of you who hear this and feel the weight of the choices you have made in the past where you have engaged in sexually immoral behaviour, either as a Christian or as a non-Christian. Remember that forgiveness is available for you. Recall the words from last week's passage, that that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. Hold on to that. Perhaps some of you have even suffered under the trauma of someone else's sexual immorality. I can't even begin to imagine what this violation of your body and of your very person it was and how it has affected you. What someone else has done to you is wrong. It's unacceptable. It's deplorable. Please remember that whatever someone has done to you, it does not define who you are today. You are a new creation in Christ. If you have not already told someone about what has been done to you and have had it reported, please take action. Tell me or someone you can trust. I want you to know that we want to take it seriously. But whatever situation we are in, uh, we are in as a church moving forward, as your new minister, I want us to work hard at building a culture of safe people in our congregation. A culture where men and women have trustworthy eyes, trustworthy thoughts, where we all feel comfortable relating to each other as men and women of God with no misguided sexual overtones or mistrust. Let's have a culture where we not only call out sin, but we are working hard to prevent the possibility of things taking place. We can't deny it. We are living in an incredibly sexualized society, not unlike the Corinthians. We can't escape that. But although we might not be able to change the culture around us, we can change the culture or shape the culture within our own congregation. So that when people come amongst us, that they know it is a safe place to be. We want to be people who reject the slogan of everything is permissible that the Corinthians adopted and embrace a slogan that reflects who we are in Christ. And if there was a slogan for us to remember about sexual immorality, there are a few from this passage. We could just simply use 
one word, flee, 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 flee from sexual immorality. But the reason we flee is summed up by Paul's other slogan. You are not your own. You are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You were bought at a price. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. Let me pray for us all. Heavenly Father, this is a very strong message for us all. We thank you that we are not our own. We thank you that we were bought at a price. The price of the precious blood of Jesus who died on the cross to make us clean. We thank you that we are united to Christ, that the Holy Spirit lives in us, that what you have designed our bodies for, that you have designed our bodies in a certain way, and that the most important relationship in our lives is being united to you. We thank you for that, Lord. Help us to be people that flee from sexual immorality. Help us to honour you with our bodies. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.